All right, folks, welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. Tonight, I am joined by a very special guest, someone that I've been looking forward to talking to for quite some time. If you'd like to introduce yourself, sir. Howdy, I'm Conan Esquire. That's a C-O-N-A-N underscore E-S-Q over on Twitter, where I post most often. I'm an attorney. I'm an author of fantasy and science fiction fiction uh and tonight i'm here to talk about boxing boxing the sweet science is a window into organized crime and the many conspiracies attendant thereto uh and i'm honored to be here i love the show um and uh i'm more than happy to spend my evening kind of tucked up in my armchair chatting about one of my favorite subjects yeah absolutely and, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head, boxing as a window into organized crime and into the seedy underbelly of America, particularly as it applies to the 20th century, where I spend so much time ranting and raving about it. You know, like many, well, some would say all organized sports, they certainly had their uh, fingers in the pie for quite a long time. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves with that, where do you want to start? Do some history of boxing, some state of boxing in the modern age. Where you do know, we go with this? I, I do want to talk about a little boxing history, at least uh, sort of the, the classic era of boxing. Um, but before that, I kind of I'm interested to hear from you what your personal history with boxing is like. Did you grow up watching the sport? What's your connection to it? What's your level of knowledge, you know? Yeah, I, I see where you're going. My level of connection with boxing is not what I want it to be, is the way I'm going to put that. I've done some combat sports. I was a wrestler. I've dabbled in boxing out and boxing as exercise, as working out. I've wanted to get into an actual boxing gym for some time. Uh, never got around to it for a lot of different reasons. I watch fights when they're on most weekends at work, but uh, I've never really had the opportunity to treat it academically or to engage with it as much as I'd like. Mm -hmm. So maybe the appropriate term would be an eager novitiate here. I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, I can't claim any great expertise in the lore of the sport either. <clears throat> I myself, I probably have a little bit more direct experience than you. Um, having grown up watching boxing really consistently with, um, you know, a couple of great uncles who were involved in the sport on a professional basis. One of them was, one of them was kind of like a low level professional boxer out here in, uh, out here in the desert Southwest where um, there's a strong and proud tradition of Mexican Mexican boxing, uh, and then others who are kind of involved in the training side of things, the cornerman side of things. And so it was always kind of a presence in my family for that reason. And then, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of work in the gym and a little bit of, like you said, just for fun and, and fitness, boxing, uh, and a little bit of sports betting. That's been kind of my thing for the last oh, couple of years. Um, I love it. I love it. Uh, which is due to my position right now, I'm not allowed to indulge. But sure, it's understandable. I've dabbled in many times. Love yeah, it. it's it's a great time. And I never bet more than a dollar or two on a on a play. So, 
you know, it's, I, I win a little bit more than I lose, which is good, but, um, you know, you can't get overindulgent on that kind of thing without no, getting really can't. <laughs> into you know, some of the trouble the that we're going to talk about. Right? Mm, you know, definitely you down a five spot on a fight and you're just that much more invested in it. And that's, that's exactly. the entire purpose right there. Right. I totally agree. It's, it's a way to buy a little bit more investment in the outcome. Yes. Win absolutely. or lose. Um, so, but you know, there's, there's so much history and so much lore to boxing. Uh, and there are so many people, even people that I interact with on Twitter, uh, you know, where I do most of my social media and online presence that just know so much more about the history of the sport and about the kind of, um, many meetings and intersections of some of the big personalities within the sport than I do. And, uh, so I, I, I make no claims to being kind of like a boxing lore head or anything, but what I do make a claim to is being able to combine uh, my employment as an attorney, my generally paranoid and conspiratorial mindset, and what I do know of boxing uh, to, pres- to be able to present kind of an interesting perspective on the sport as, uh, as you know, it, it's, it's almost one-to-one with organized crime. Like it's hard to say even today that boxing even exists without, uh, you know, without organized crime and, and sure, maybe it's not kind of the old school mafiosos anymore, at least in the States. Um, but you know, organized crime is bigger than just the Italian mob. Oh, it really, really is. And I think most of the audience realizes that, at least, uh, just how much they know. I think they might even be more interested in that aspect of it than the actual boxing. I'm sure I've got some boxing fans. This episode's for you. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into the organized crime when it comes up. But, yeah, it's um, the other thing I wanted to bring up here right away at the beginning would you think it's safe to say it's probably the most shot through sport, especially today? I know there was a while in the early, early 20th century when you could have made the case that fixing in baseball was just as bad, if not mm-hmm. worse. But it seems when people think about uh, corruption and rigging, boxing is always the first thing they think of. They think about the trope of a dude taking the dive in the fourth round or Mm -hmm. whatever it may be, or picking winners to ensure that books get balanced a certain way. In the, in the States, definitely. There's no, I can't think of a sport that's more, that's more fixed than boxing is. Boxing is fixed from top to bottom. Uh, and we can get into what that means and exactly how that works because it's not every, you're right. Everybody does think of the guy taking a dive in the fourth, but that's not all there is to fixing this sport of boxing, right? It's not, it's not just that at all. It, the entire sport is fixed. It, there's, there's, you know, 50 people all involved in a fight, all attempting aggressively to fix it for their, for their own purpose for themselves. Sure. And that's the other aspect people need to consider here. And not just with boxing, but with broader conspiracy thinking, Mm -hmm. there is no Illuminati. There's just competing power bases with the ability to touch levers of power. 
and you can scale that up to world wars, but you can scale it all the way down to two athletes getting in between some rubber ropes on top of canvas too. Well, and that's, you know, ultimately you anticipate, anticipate me here because that's ultimately, I think where, where we're going. And one of the connections that I want to draw here, because there's an obvious um, parallel between two combatants in the ring and let's say two combatants uh, on the election circuit. Uh, and the the people watching the fight imagine that it's just two guys fighting, but it's not really just two guys fighting. Like it's an, this is an event, right? This is an event that has to be licensed. This is an event that has to be sanctioned. It's an event that has to be funded. Um, venues to have to be rented out right? and marketing exactly. So you know the, any boxing fight that you watch. Even if you go on YouTube and look at crappy backyard fight promotions, the the most rinky dink thing you could possibly find, um, you know, there's still dozens to hundreds at a at a base minimum of people involved in that, and uh, all of them have a stake in the outcome. and And there are very very simple ways that that outcome can be manipulated. And the same is true on a much grander scale in most cases, uh, <laughs> although not in all cases, because there are some boxing fights that are certainly bigger than some elections. Um, oh, yes, yes, there are. <laughs> but, but I think the, uh, you know, the, the comparison it, it remains true that there are the, the people in the ring, um, the, the names on the ballot, are only the tip of the iceberg. They certainly are. So before we really sprawl out, which we discussed before coming on air, that we weren't going to do that right out the gate. So perhaps we could start a little bit with, if you could tell us just about how the system works or how the system should ideally work before we get into just how wrenches get thrown into it, perhaps. Yeah, there's a couple of pieces to the system. There are, in general, boxers are managed by managers and they are promoted by promoters. So those are, are kind of the three main characters in, in the play here. And, you know, then there's also coaches. And uh, so I guess four main characters. On top of that, there's some... Some well, let me say the boxer is the main character. The coaches, promoters, and managers are, are sort of secondary characters, and uh, there's tertiary characters as well, in the form of uh, state licensing bodies who uh, hand out licenses to boxers and to promoters and to everybody involved in this to license and sanction a fight, and you know they have some measure of oversight in terms of. Um, what gloves are going to be used and whether somebody is, you know, even qualified to be doing professional boxing in the first place. And that varies state to state. Uh, and what states are typically targeted by people looking to put on fights has changed over time. So that's kind of one fairly complex thread of this that is a thread that um, <laughs> that I actually have some familiarity with just bumping into these people over the course of my legal career. Uh, and then there's also boxing promotions. And these promotions are the organizational bodies that sort of exist to 
um, call people champions, right? They provide some degree of ranking and uh, uh, culminate in a championship. They maintain weight classes and culminate in championships. And there's five main boxing promotions and they each have a champion for each of like, I think it's 17 weight classes now. So there are a lot of championship belts floating around and the politics involved in um, who has what belt at what time and who gets to fight who for the chance to unify belts or what belts are going to be on the line, so to speak, in any given fight um, are intensely complicated and uh, matters of like very, very, very closely guarded contracts between uh, the different camps here. So now that's something I actually kind of wanted to ask about mm-hmm. because I'm sure, except for the couple of boxing heads, I'm sure I've gotten the listenership. People might not realize that, that there's not some one world government of boxing. Right. There's a lot of organizations, each basically competing for soft power clout, you know, the right to say, Hey, we're the belt you actually want and how they attract fighters and teams to their events as opposed to others is I'm sure mind boggling and just as much buried in skullduggery as everything else we're going to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is this idea that boxing is like um, a more unified sport than it is. And it's not, it's not at all because every, like I alluded to earlier, everything in boxing is done on contracts and these contracts are negotiated primarily based on, um, draws, like who can draw viewership, who can, who brings people to purchase a pay-per-view. Right. And so that's the real negotiating power for all of these boxers and this is true in this is obviously um more going always going to be more true from like just a a raw business perspective in sports like boxing or even mma where you have two guys in a ring and it's those two guys who are selling the event versus um, a more institutional sport where you're the draw is not so much, you know, any one guy on, you know, the the San Francisco 49ers as much as it is the 49ers as an institution attracts, right. uh, you know, attracts football fans. Yeah, and absolutely. and you, of course, you have a guy like Tom Brady who has such star power that he he can command, uh, you know, a better contract in that sense. But um with with a boxer that negotiating disparity that a negotiating power is like everything right it's it's how he extracts um percentages off the pay-per-view sales it's it's the basis for his entire negotiating power uh as he's working these contracts between himself and his management himself and his promotion himself and even his his coach although you know those relationships tend to be more personal now, is it the manager that interfaces with the promoters on their behalf? Is that the role? Then, well, this it, the, that's where kind of this distinction, this neat distinction of roles that I've drawn starts to really degrade. Sure. Uh, because yeah. there is supposed to be a difference between a manager and a promoter. And in reality, there often is not. 
Um, sometimes they're one and the same guy. Sometimes the, um, you know, the promoter is doing part of the manager's job. Sometimes the manager is overstepping his bounds and doing some of the promoter's job. Um, and so again, there's no, these are, these are sort of descriptive terms rather than proscriptive terms. Uh, and what it really is, is people who have or can build relationships uh, with the talent in any direction uh, do that. And then they exploit that, right? And so this that's, yeah. that's the Don King story. That's the Don King power. And everybody over a certain age in your audience will remember the name Don King. And nobody under a certain age will remember the name Don King unless they're, you know, boxing psychos for some reason. Right. But so do we want to get into that right now or do we want to let that simmer just a bit? Well, yeah, let's let's save that because I think we can bring that in at a more um, opportune time. But I want to I want to bring it up to make the point that, you know, Don King does not care whether he's a promoter or he's a manager or, you know, what he is. What he cares about is that he can get a boxer to sign a contract. That's what Don King cares about. And uh, so he, you know, he and all these guys, you know, Frankie Carbo, some of the other people that we can talk about tonight, what they're really doing is they're pushing people into signing contracts that are ultimately advantageous to them. Um, and then arguably, and in a lot of cases, uh, definitely going beyond that <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and manipulating the outcome of the fight in another way or other ways. But yeah, maybe we can start by, um, I don't know, talking about, uh, you know, there's, I think this is what I'd like to talk about first. I think I'd like to make the point that it is beyond argument um, that boxing and the mafia and, and let's say organized crime go hand in hand. And whether any specific fight is rigged, you know, I don't necessarily have an opinion on, but there are people that, you know, that will say to you, ah, oh, no way, you know, maybe, maybe it was rigged somewhat in the past, uh, but it's 2022 now. We don't, you know, that's, that's like a thing of the past. It doesn't happen anymore. You know what? And that's perfect. I'm glad you're making that point because as I'm sure you're also well aware, that is a huge argument against conspiracy culture. Mm -hmm. Sure. The CIA poisoned California in the sixties. Sure, they smuggled cocaine into Miami in the 80s. Sure, they were operating black sites during the global war on terror. But what have they done in the last two weeks? Right, exactly. And um, so like, the, the but it's, this is, evinces, in my opinion, a real misunderstanding of the degree to which boxing was... Um, affiliated with and controlled by organized crime because it, it can't be overstated. I mean, we are talking about some of the most prominent boxers um, of all time being completely mobbed up, right? Like we're talking about Jake LaMotta. Jake LaMotta is, uh, you know, one of, if not the most known, recognizable, classic uh, 
boxers of all time. And there is famous testimony of Jake LaMotta to Congress, you know, sometime after he ended up retiring, that where he just flat out testifies under oath to Congress that Frankie Carbo and other, you know, other members of the Italian mafia um, got him to got him to take a dive. They got him to take a dive against um, in the LaMotta Fox fight in 1947 against Blackjack Billy Fox and Billy Fox wins this fight and, and then spirals into like severe depression over the fact that everybody in the world uh, knew that he'd fixed the that the fight was fixed and that he hadn't won. Um, and Which just to think about for a moment must be so devastating for a professional athlete, especially because despite the fact that some of these guys are complicit, I think we all understand that to compete at the highest level, you have to be fully dedicated to winning and to know that a win is just an empty shell must just be the most devastating thing I can imagine for someone like that. And, and that, that's a great point because it, it dovetails with something that I was kind of leading up to or wanting to build up to, which is that often the, the only guy who doesn't understand that the fight was fixed is the guy who wins the fight. And it's because, as you say, he's so dedicated to the sport. He's so committed to the sport. He's so in love with the sport. And these guys are so young most of the time. When you think about these pro boxers, these pro athletes, these pro MMA guys, they're in their 20s, usually. Young 20s coming up. Uh, And that is when, especially, these records are being manipulated and these uh, deals are being made and these understandings are developing. And they don't know anything about it. Um, but I don't know if any, I don't know if Pat, have you seen Nacho Libre? Have you seen that movie? Oh, the Jack it's Black an absolute movie? classic. Yeah. It's a classic. Okay. So do you remember when they wrestle the first, the wrestling match that they have and they lose and they're all depressed. And then the manager or the promoter or whatever he is walks in and he throws him the envelope and he's like, you know, they, they don't understand why they're getting paid. And they're like, well, we're putting on a show. Like everybody gets a piece of the pie. He says, yeah. And that's how it works. I mean, you know, if you lose the boxing match, you still get paid, you get a purse to show, and then maybe you get additional money to win. And maybe you get, um, you know, maybe you get a cut of the sales if you're a really big name and all of that is from a mechanic standpoint here too. It's probably useful to disambiguate generally when these fights are arranged it's in the fight contract itself mm-hmm. what the winner and loser gets and these numbers are all pre-divided right and what we'll be talking about later in the episode is that there may be other financial factors uh outside of whatever the formal contract is oh there well yeah there absolutely are first of all the con these contracts are are um very closely guarded secrets uh and they are full of terms that you would that there are good reasons for them to be closely guarded secrets right for example um one of the big recent controversies is around some of these stupid celebrity boxing matches that are going on where mike you know mike tyson fights jake paul or jake paul fights whoever p diddy or something yeah i think he fought tyron woodley recently or You know, I don't know. I haven't been paying close attention. I just, I'm aware that uh, they've been happening. And, oh, 
Floyd Mayweather fought Logan Paul, but yeah, and yeah. so out of that fight, there was some controversy because it was alleged that there was something called a no knockout clause in that contract, which is uh, essentially the idea is that you have a you would have a clause that says you know if you you know fighter a agrees to use his best efforts to not knock out fighter b or fighter you know both parties agree uh to use their best efforts to not knock out the other party and you know if party if one party gets knocked out the other party doesn't get a certain division of the funds allocated to the two fighters right right they were trying to uh, allegedly set something up where this wasn't just going to be an absolute dusting one way or the other you know that sort of thing uh, at least nominally, if it exists, probably exists to try and ensure some sort of audience buy-in, I would mm-hmm. imagine. But this Again, is... Nominally, anyways. This is where the line between um, real and fake gets blurry, right? Because there's there's not a law on the books that says you can't just contract for the fight to go a certain way. Like you could, con- you can make that contract, of course, because how otherwise think about it, how, how else would professional wrestling work, you know, or how, like those guys, there are certain, there are certain things that they agree to certain outcomes that are agreed to in professional wrestling. That and is actually pretty open about that, right? Like, hey, right. these people were going to win this event and we told them you two work on a script to get to this outcome. Right. And so from a, from a legal perspective, though, you know, in our heads, in our, in our social or cultural lens, you, you treat boxing as different than pro wrestling. You understand that they're in different categories. Um, one, the outcome is uncertain and one, the outcome is certain. But those two sports, those from a legal perspective, it's just, it's just people putting on events, right? And so f- there's not a there's not a, um, a formal category that one exists in and the other doesn't exist in that makes it okay for WWE to have contractually determined outcomes to their events and for you know the IBF uh, to not have that they can't that says they can't have that so in reality there's a measure of trust that exists with these boxing promotions that put on the fights that they are actually going to put on um, a real contest. And when a contest is not intended to be a real contest, you know, they'll call it an exhibition. They'll have certain rules. Um, and that, you know, that sets the expectations with the audience. But, but in reality, there's, there's, you're depending a lot on trust for the people who are involved with putting on this fight to put on a real fight to put on a real contest. If I can just insert something here, I just personally am curious about how and why you're choosing to use the word trust, because in my mind, and maybe this is just symptomatic of how I personally think it seems to me like, especially given the context in which we're discussing this, there's a sort of dependence on consumer ignorance more than there is any attempt at all to generate public trust. Obviously, they're promoting norms and mores that make it seem like, hey, obviously this is legit. We couldn't get away with that. But even then, it seems like there's a sort of malicious uh, encouragement 
of a population's ignorance more than there is a promotion of buy-in and trust. Um, I, I think I would agree, but I think they, there is, let's say lip service done toward, uh, creating this, this trust that I'm talking about. And that, that lip service is, is offered to the degree required to create a certain amount of trust in low information people like low information boxing fans right and so and not one iota more like they don't give a shit after that pardon my okay, french sure. but yeah, uh, so so you know there's there's certain methods that are in place to select boxing judges and uh those methods are easily trivially easily circumvented uh and you'll hear in fact i've had people more closely involved with boxing than i am reach out to me on twitter and tell me about some of the stuff they've seen in this regard and some of the ways that uh some of the ways that this is done which is always always a trip yeah and it's a real eye opener yeah and and um it's and even without these personal firsthand accounts, this direct evidence, you could just through inductive reasoning realize it, that that a judge who um, identifies the promoter or the manager, the st- the star promoter, the star manager, the person with some clout in the room, and uh, you know errs or fudges results in that individual's favor is going to be selected to judge fights or or let's say not excluded from judging fights depending on how uh you know what what contractual provisions are active in this case and what state we're in and how all this methodology works he's he is going to understand that those rules better than anyone else and he's going to be able to uh, in every case where he has to make a decision, make a decision in the way that's going to help his career as a boxing judge, whether it's fair or not. Like that opportunity now, is there. There's a consideration here as to whether that's an implicit passive process mm-hmm. or an active one. And I'm not going to go any further with it than that because I'm sure it's something we'll come back around to eventually here. But maybe that's worth thinking about for the audience. Agreed. But I, I want to make it clear that when I'm when I'm talking about this stuff, this is a minimum. This is a this is the bare minimum that is, in my opinion, inarguable. And then on top of that, then then you can get to the stories where, uh, you know, Don King is meeting with the judge the night before at a fancy French restaurant with a uh, briefcase full of cash, for example, <laughs> um, which which does exist, right? Those there's many stories out there of like former boxing promoters or associates of, of major promoters who are like, uh, yeah, we had to uh, we had to track this guy down in an airport bathroom to get him his five thousand dollars cash so that he'd you know sign the sign the damn contract. <laughs> and and so there's just a tremendous I mean there's no this is what I'm saying there's no there's no um really meaningful regulatory oversight over any of this like you can just do this stuff and the fact that most people don't follow it that closely and most people you know these things would never necessarily leak unless you're really really on the inside and you're just hearing rumors from trusted people 
in involved in the camps. I mean, you know, the, the average person is just not going to understand this stuff until it comes out in a tell all book 20 years down the line after somebody retires. Uh, but, but these people are actively, uh, inarguably corrupt. Like Frankie Carbo and his associates went to prison, went to Alcatraz for many decades, uh, for, among other things, rigging fights, right? Like this is not, there's nothing controversial, particularly controversial about this. They worked for Murder Inc., right? These guys, these Meyer are like- Meyer Lansky, right? That's right. And I was going right. to bring that up if you didn't. Meyer Lansky was basically the next step above this individual Carbo that we're talking about. Yes. Lansky's going to come up quite a bit, uh, maybe not in this episode, but in future stuff I have planned. Perfect. Yeah, these are I, these are bad dudes. And in fact, um, this dude named Ralph Natale from Philly, who's like a Philly mafia uh, guy boss, said that it was Frank, Frankie Carbo is uh, Jake LaMotta's manager who fixes the fight or well, helps fix the fight in um, in LaMotta Fox that I'm talking about. And they, he also fixes uh, Gavilan versus Saxton in 1954. And so he's he's heavily involved in fixing these fights and he's also the guy that Ralph Natale claims killed Bugsy Siegel on Meyer Lansky's orders out in California, which is is such a crazy connection. And I think to me is is really the claim or the data point that marries the boxing thing to the mafia just so tightly that it's inextricable in my opinion i mean the mafia isn't what it used to be but these the practices that they developed the culture that they developed uh is is absolutely still present in boxing and in combat sports more broadly our friend yeah, there's no reason i think that to, i think to think that there wouldn't be right i mean the people who are doing this can shift and change and whatever but yes that's as simple as this change in hands between crime families, which is de facto what we're talking about. Right. You know, one time it's murder Inc and the Jewish mob, and then it's the Italians. It all started with the Irish, presumably. That's right. Uh, and it's, it doesn't typically matter who's sitting on the top of the heap because the culture and the more importantly, the system, the culture allows is already in place. That's absolutely correct. And it's, um, it goes back to, what we I was talking to you about right before we jumped on the air, which is this picture of probably the most successful and famous Mexican boxer of all time, Julio Cesar Chavez, who <laughs> who is in this picture with not one but two heads of two different uh, cartels, Mexican cartels, El Azul and Amado Fuentes. And these guys are, I think Al Azul is still active. I don't know. But um, Amado Fuentes was, died in a, I want to say, and this is off the cuff, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was a botched plastic surgery operation. I think he died on the operating table. And I don't know whether that was, you know, I don't know to what extent that was, um, you know, totally real because two weeks later, his doctors were found dead in uh, in a couple of 55 gallon oil drums which is just again this this is the most famous mexican boxer of all time the most successful mexican he's like 107 and 6 on his record 
And he's telling this story, these wildly inconsistent stories about his, um, his very close ties with all these carteles, like how after he, he says he didn't use any cocaine until, <laughs> until 1992 <laughs> after his fight with Hector Macho Camacho and uh, which is a big win for him. Like that's a big fight. Hector Camacho was a good fighter. And uh, he says, you know, he says, all, he says after this fight, he goes and parties with like 300 armed cartel dudes. And he tells them, he finds out they didn't bring any Coke with them. And he tells him, get out. All he wanted was Coke. <laughs> and so these cartel bosses say, okay, they snap their fingers and they, you know, go bring him a heroic amount of cocaine. And at the same time, he's like, no, 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 no you don't understand. We were just friends. Like, I, you know, I was never involved with their business. Uh, we were just friends because I was a famous boxer and flatly denies uh, ever helping them launder money through his fights. But again, you the, they don't care if the fighter knows that he's helping them launder money. You know, the, right? The, it doesn't matter if the machinery is in place to do exactly. it. Exactly. Do it. Exactly. And so you know, he I I think to some extent he knows. Chavez knows well, obviously he's not going to admit like it, that, but it has to, right? And no one's going to make him admit it, at least not now, not at this stage. But mm -hmm. come on, buddy, let's just be real, <laughs> right? I mean, he, I mean, he was with these, he was closely connected with these guys for years. Listen to this: his son, uh, who is also himself a, a famous and successful boxer, uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr., uh, it had just recently, fairly recently, had a child with the daughter who is the widow of one of El Chapo's sons. So there's a third, there's a third uh, cartel head in the mix here. And this and is very recent. And one degree of separation this whole way. Right, exactly, exactly. And so uh, these, these are not people who, that, who you're just friends with, right? They're people who are friends with you for a reason and whether or not you realize it, you can certainly be used to uh, enrich them or to launder money. And there's a lot of different ways that the outcome of a fight can be determined because what is it, what is illegal, at least in the States uh, with regard to boxing is, or with regard to any sports in general is influencing the outcome of a fight so that you win a bet. That's, that's, that is clearly legal. There are statutes that address that. And there are a couple of other um, laws that play on, you know, that limit or boundary the ability to determine the outcome of a fight. But for example, there, you know, one of the most basic ways that fighting is fixed is these is not, is not necessarily, you know, Jake LaMotta taking a dive and testifying to Congress that, Hey, yeah, I just, I just fell over, you know, I, <laughs> I just <laughs> went down, which is basically what Jake LaMotta did. He, he actually got up in front of Congress and the testimony on this is fascinating. If you can find it, it takes a little digging to dig up on the internet, but it's still there. And he basically is like, yeah, I just, I, I wasn't even really hurt. And the, you know, the Congressman test or um, questioning him is like, you were getting punched in the face like dozens of times that didn't hurt. And he's like, well, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't <laughs> like, I'm used to it. Right. And it's just weird to hear him talk about, uh, basically he was saying like this guy, uh, that he fought blackjack, Billy Fox just had no real ability to put him down or anything. Uh, and 
he eventually just kind of went over and later blamed it on his spleen, which I, you know, I, I speculate is kind of one of the origins for like the, my spleen comment being its own little absurd cartoonish claim of injury that floats around. But, you know, I don't have any basis for that. That's just so folk etymology. I don't think I'm actually uh, familiar with that as a meme. Is that a boxing thing when you blame the spleen sort of an inside joke there? You know, honestly, I think I'm just free associating here, but in my head, and maybe I'm the only person in the world who thinks this, but in my head, there's like pictures or cartoon, you know, memories of cartoons claiming that they're injured because of their spleen like their spleen is injured or i ruptured my spleen or something and it's just such a funny sounding word and kind of an absurd claim that i wonder if it goes back to uh to jake lamata claiming his spleen went out on him <laughs> in this well, fight and that could very well be the case because as we know many of those old cartoons especially are way more woke than people realize mm-hmm. too a lot of what is, uh, you know, lost to the modern audience is direct cultural references or in jokes of the of the era. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the, I mean, you can uh, let's say let's let's paint a little scenario. There's there's a scenario here where you manage a fighter. He's he's a he's a handsome guy. He's good. He's a real skilled young guy, really charming, charismatic, good on the mic. He's he can go places, right? You got a young Muhammad Ali on your hands here. And you need to find him his next fight. It's his fifth fight. He's five. He's four and zero now. So you walk into a gym, or you call, uh, you know, another manager you know, or another coach you know, and you say, "Hey, you know, my guy's looking for a fight. Um, he's he's real sharp. He's a killer. He's in the gym all the time. He's looking great. He's you know, he's really he's going places. Well, if I'm the manager that you're calling. I know what you're looking for." Right, I know you're looking for a bum. I know you're looking for what they call a tomato can, a can to crush, and sure, so somebody to keep sharpening the record. Exactly, yeah. exactly, because you know, with a bigger record, that's that's how you build a guy into a real draw. Like you know, if I tell you a guy's four and zero, you say okay, whatever. If I tell you guys four and two, you say all right, well, that sucks. <laughs> but yeah, if a guy's he's another guy, right? If you if I tell you a guy's twenty five and zero. Now you're excited. You're like, wow, this guy's got a perfect record. Can he keep it going? Is he going to get beat finally? So that's what's so exciting about, you know, a lot of these title fights that come out. Well, let's not get into that. That's a whole nother thing. But (laughs) um, yeah, so you call me, you tell me that. And I say, well, you know, I got, I got a guy, I got a guy. He's, you know, he's four and three, he's four and two. He's, he's all right. He hasn't been in the gym too much lately. Uh, But I'll, you know, I'll drop him a line, see if he wants to take the fight you know what just happened and I know what just happened. And uh, the fighter that I am going to put into the ring with your guy to get smoked knows what happened because he is Nacho Libre in this circumstance. He <laughs> right. gets, he gets a piece of the pie, even if he loses and he doesn't care. He, he's already four and three. He knows he's never going to be yeah. the champ. And he's, at that point, he's just cashing checks for whatever his cut of the purse ends up. And the crazy thing is a lot of times those guys get paid a lot more than you would think. Like it can be very lucrative uh, to be the can that gets crushed in these circumstances. And uh, not just there, there are cases where a manager who is building a new prospect is losing money on that prospect on the outset because they're paying these um 
you know, under the table, outside the contract bonuses to the losing fighter to not, you know, not to not necessarily to take a dive, but uh, it's not, you know, that's such an, that's such an old school tactic. Like, um, I, that's what, that's what Jake LaMotta tells Congress, right. In his, in his congressional testimony that I referenced earlier, he tells Congress that Billy, uh, Billy Fox's manager met him in the park and was like, listen, take a dive and, uh, we'll get you the title shot. Right. That's what he did it for. He was, uh, he felt like the guy who had the title at the time kept ducking him and he wanted the title shot because he felt like he'd earned the title shot. So and maybe so, you hold this L, all of a sudden you look like you're fresh off a loss. You don't look as intimidating. Now we can line up the fight and then you've got that angle to promote it even more too. Exactly. And so it's it, that's that's the other way that this is not dissimilar um, from let's say pro wrestling, which is that a lot of the time these fights are part of what you're doing when you market a fight, when you promote a fight is you're developing this storyline, right? And the storyline is, it may be true. It may be true and exaggerated. It may be completely false. Um, but it, that's in large part what sells the fight. Um, and that's, I don't know if you've heard the phrase like great white hope that, oh, yeah. that, com- I mean, you know, that comes out of boxing. This, that's this idea that, um, you know, they, they used to sell all these fights on like the black guy beating the white guy or the white guy. Finally, the white guy was going to beat the, the big black fighter that everybody's scared of or whatever. And, uh, you know, these are, these are marketing tactics. These aren't like particularly meaningful <laughs> like racial uh narratives that come out of nowhere they, they're played up actively as ways to market and sell these fights and so you're always looking at not just how you can sell this fight but how you can position your guy for the next fight and he's aware of this and you know there's this this constantly in flux social dynamic to the fight scene um, and internal fight politics that that are being played that are this goes back to what I was saying earlier that everybody has their their particular interest in the fight and in the fighter and in kind of the the fight environment generally and there are all these different ways that that um, these outcomes can be manipulated and you know the the example that I just gave is like one of ma- I mean there are people there are people doing crazy there's there's there are people who are um, you know, at the low levels are using illicit techniques to, you know, wrap their fighters fingers less or, or, or scrape out the padding of gloves. Yep. Yep. And all that does happen. Um, there, there's obviously dirty boxing in the ring that fighters will use to cheat. And you can, I mean, if you watch boxing long enough, you can just see that happen. You can Absolutely. see guys grabbing on the shorts. You can see guys grabbing on the gloves. You can see guys throwing low blows or back of the head punches, that kind of thing. And um, I mean, so this is what I'm talking about. There's, and that's that's cheating, and that's not particularly. I don't think you would consider that rigging a fight, but you understand that it's like um, 
it, it's almost like you know that nature channel footage of like when a whale dies its carcass sinks through the layers of the ocean to the yes. bottom and Absolutely. they talk about how all the different animals of the ecosystem like feast on the whale all the way down and then the shrimp and the bottom feeders like clean its bones at the bottom that's what's happening in boxing as like you see a boxer go through his career all of these like bottom feeding shrimp and in different layers of the boxing ecosystem are are conglomerating around him to maximally exploit him uh in a competitive way over the course of his career and that's the point that i want to make ideally with this this entire conversation which is that the real sport of boxing is watching uh the competition to you know to cheat the fight to rig the fight to exploit the fight game in your favor to me that's the that's the real fun like obviously i love the boxing the boxing is great but watching but the it political endeavor behind yeah it, the game within the game the actual for real 4d chess right of arranging it just so there's a um a really famous and this is brings us back to don king uh there's a really famous story that don king himself tells when he <clears throat> He is like starting his his whole uh, his whole career, and he is like he's he's just he has no experience. Well, let me let me set the stage here. Don King goes to jail, and he goes to jail. Uh, he he's running numbers. He's running the numbers racket for the mob, and he uh, kills a guy. He beats a guy to death. And he goes to jail for it, and he's eventually released. And then he gets into boxing. So that's who Don King is. So this guy makes his bones off books, right? And then all of a sudden, he pops out. A guy owes him six. A guy. A guy owes him six hundred dollars on the books, and he he just kills that guy. He beats him to death, like in front of the cops. And and if you read the story about it, and I'll I'll post the story about it on my Twitter maybe tomorrow because it's wild. He doesn't care at all. Right. He, he mm-hmm. he's he the cops show up and he's like, it's that guy's fault. Like the guy he just killed. <laughs> and it's 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 totally ruthless. And so he gets then he gets out of jail and gets into boxing. And he talks his way into uh Joe Frazier's camp when Joe Frazier fights George Foreman in Kingston, Jamaica. And Nobody expects George Foreman to win, but he does. And Don King is there with Joe Frazier, but some in the middle of the fight, he does like a total switcheroo and talks his way into George Foreman's camp and is now he he arrives at the arena with Joe Frazier's camp and leaves the arena with George Foreman's camp. And he's now George Foreman's promoter. And it's this that's like the real story to me of uh, of that fight i mean it's a good fight of course it's a classic fight but part of the reason that it's a classic fight is because don king has this uh line where he's like i came into the ring with the champion and i left with the champion and that's his <laughs> line but it's two different guys and it's sure. just it's insane to see him in real time uh you know like master manipulating his way into or to the top of this 
this uh, you know intense social ecosystem of boxing and in a story such a like that of course demands the question how much of that then was pre-negotiated right is it fair to tarnish the record of a truly legendary fight based on his actions or was it a social ploy you know with don king it's hard to tell because every by every uh, account of him he is incredibly charismatic, just an incredibly charismatic uh, and compelling personality. As far as the outcome of that fight, that I do not know the answer to. I will say that my instinct and, and impression is that actually uh, high stakes championship fights like that are some of the least fixed fights in boxing. Because the attention, I'd be inclined to believe that. I think, yeah, so because much the... harder to get away with stuff. There's so much profit already baked into something. Exactly. Like that. At that level, it's you know everybody's getting a big payday, uh, and and I think that the risk becomes so much higher for a cheat, um, and and uh, you know at. I mentioned, I referenced this earlier at that point when you are, and these fights get avoided now a lot. It's a big complaint that people have with boxing. Like when Tyson Fury uh, just recently fought Deontay Wilder, it was kind of a big deal because the, there was a potential uh, unification of the heavyweight belts. But what you usually see is that a champion of one promotion does not, they they'll do you know what they can to avoid fighting the champion of another promotion because both oh, these right. guys you have what's their incentive structure exactly. look like to have that fight because both these guys have 27 and 0 records uh both these well you know not in i'm just talking about in the hypothetical case here not in the right fury wilder case but both these guys have perfect records neither of them want to risk that perfect record and you know there's not if they're going to do that it's going to be for cash out money right and that's what happened in this game. I mean, Tyson Fury obviously uh, smoked Deontay Wilder a couple times. Yeah, absolutely ruined the guy. And you can see that the reality is there there are just not that many truly top-level boxers in boxing because the best guys avoid fighting each other at all costs. And when they do fight each other... that gets exposed and somebody takes the L and they're, you know, the, the importance of that zero perfect record in boxing is like so great that, um, you know, they, there's a real tarnishing of their reputation. There's a real tarnishing of their, um, apparent skill, their ability to, to draw a crowd, let's say. And so it, you know, Tyson Fury really walked away with everything from that meeting, but, you know, I don't know what Deontay Wilder got paid for that, but I'm sure that, you know, if he was going to put that on the line, it was enough to retire on. To the ego. <laughs> right. <laughs> to the ego. Yeah, exactly. So that then makes me inclined to believe, and you can tell me if this is wrong or right, that the place where we would see the most dirt, if we were to scratch the surface and start digging, Mm-hmm. the richest soil for this is probably somewhere in the mid tier, right? Like all this action is happening where people are starting to get a name and at the beginning of the hype train, because they're not big enough to draw attention yet, but they're big enough to start getting paydays. 
Yeah. Does that feel right? It feels right, and it feels right. You you got to think about the incentives here because obviously there's the the it's all. Uh, why do you rig a fight? You know, why do you manipulate the outcome of a fight? The reason you manipulate the outcome of a fight in most cases is to know which way to bet. And so if there's no action on a fight, then, you know, a bet is not necessarily, uh, you know, there's not, there's not action on a fight. Like you're not necessarily going to get good odds on it. You're not necessarily going to um, be able to move money through that without being like, you know, without Observe being noticed, so, without you're things not getting off your book, and you're not going to be able to wash anything. Exactly, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's prior to the the insane level of scrutiny that comes at the very top of. Um, you know, the food chain, the boxing food chain. But when there is enough name recognition and awareness that there is money coming in on the books, that's a, that's the sweet spot. That that would be my, <laughs> you know, my guess. On, so uh, back to where we began, the young contenders are the crowd you have to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there's, there's a few cases... Obviously, like the Lamada and the Lamada Fox fight that I mentioned, that I've kind of been using as a case study, that's a classic fight. That's but that's 1947. You know the the world of the world of organized crime and and corruptive methods has come a long way since then, <laughs> and we really, uh, you know, we really created a new class of a um, federal oversight resistant bacteria in that sense. Mm. Yep. And, um, but I, you know, I think there are, I, I personally think have some theories about some fights at a high level that were fixed, but, uh, or that have been fixed, but lately I think it's been, I think it's been uh, people tipping the scales in the UFC rather than in boxing. I think there's I been some be sketchy. I would prepared to believe that completely wholesale. Mm-hmm. Well, boxing still has. I think. Some huge uh, I think the U. It's a little around. bit different because it's the it's UFC is obviously much. It's its own promotion, and all of its of fighters are under contract pressure. with the UFC. So because there's, uh, it's, it's a lot more unified. But uh, in, in that sense, it creates an opportunity because, you know, boxing is kind of a known quantity at this point. I think even if you don't want to interfere, officials know where to look to find it. Right. And while that mostly translates to the UFC, it's just a new enough animal that some of that scrutiny and some of that, I think the better word was probably even institutional mm-hmm. uh, factors that have grown up around it just aren't there yet. Yeah, there's there's really not um, the, the rules by which the fights are judged are pretty squishy when you get down into it and you start looking at how fights are scored. Um, you know, it's, it's very, very fudgeable depending on the fight. And so you see a lot of like what I would consider very questionable decisions. And once you start to get to know some of the frequent flyers on the judging table with the UFC, uh, 
you start to notice some patterns, right? And every right. time there's a, a very a, like a wildly questionable decision in the direction that the UFC, if you know the UFC, uh, thinks is a more marketable direction for them, you see uh, Saul D'Amato's name pop up, Saul D'Amato the judge <laughs> and you're like huh wow sal D'Amato with the crazy yeah with the crazy scorecard on this fight oh herb dean refereeing this fight too every single time very strange uh, and again it's just a it's uh, they know what side the bread is buttered on and they know how to tip the scales in the direction you know i don't think i don't think there's any need for you know dana white the president of the ufc to have a conversation with herb dean I think they just each know what what part they have to play, and there's yeah sufficiently savvy enough that they mm-hmm. know what they need the outcome to be. And if I can riff on that idea for just a moment, that's another component of conspiracy thinking, which makes it hard to create steel man arguments for, but makes it that much more easy to detect if you have the intellectual bravery to make the claim. Because you don't have to have a receipt of the conversation and you don't even necessarily have to have the conversation because if you understand that these people are rational actors and can evaluate incentives just as well, but frequently significantly more efficiently than other people, you already know what they're going to do because you know what's in their best interest. Of course. That doesn't make it any less of a conspiracy. No, it just makes it harder to prove in court and harder to convince people who do not have, you know, the experience or the ability to think seriously about how, um, you know, interpersonal dynamics really work in practice that conspiracies exist. Like, uh, you know, sometimes I'm talking to people and I'm like, listen, think about yourself at work. Do you know, you know what motivates your boss? So you do things that that will you know in, endear you to your boss based on his interests and his motivations or her interests and her motivations for example i i know that when i'm in a meeting with my boss and my boss's boss if i talk up my boss in front of my boss's boss or if i make my boss look good in front of my boss's boss my boss is going to like me more my boss doesn't have to tell me that. I don't have to tell my boss I'm doing that. But we both know what's going on. Right. Exactly. And exactly. even even if my boss doesn't under, you know explicitly understand what's going on, he's going to be rewarded by what I do. And therefore, he's going to you know look upon me favorably and take me into more meetings. And you know, it, it, it's it's not it's not rocket science. It's just you have to you have to think about it in you have to almost I, I hate to use the word but you have to normalize you have to normalize conspiracy thinking you know yeah yeah and i think that's perfectly reasonable that's exactly right you know just it what i tell people is just lean into the weird right it's all mm-hmm. around you you just got to be willing to look at it and then admit to yourself that that's what it is well this is this is the point that i always make about alex jones it's it's that alex jones is never really wrong on the facts. It's just that his interpretation of the facts is so wildly different than your interpretation of the facts. And I always think of this one example where, you know, Alex Jones 
before he got banned off of everything. I think I heard him on the radio one time or something. And he is reading this news story and he's ranting about how Oprah is funding depop like these wild, these crazy depopulation programs in Africa and they're they want to, you know, like depopulate Africa and they're racist and they want to kill all these you know what I'm you know what I'm I know getting exactly at the genre you're talking right. about. Right. Yeah. And and I'm like, that is that is crazy. That cannot be true. And I go and I look up the story that he's reading. And, you know, the story is that Oprah has contributed some amount of funding or she's on the board of some NGO that is providing contraceptives in Africa to to like address Africa's poverty and, uh, you know, food shortages through population management efforts. And it's the same thing. It's just that. Alex Jones looks at it one way and he phrases it one way and he feels a certain way about the, you know, the implication of these facts and everybody else is so, you know, adjusted to kind of the, the way that what Oprah is doing is communicated to the people as acceptable and propagandized as acceptable by, you know, the, the usual propaganda channels that they can read that headline and it doesn't even register for them. They're like, Oh, how, you know, good for her. And Alex Jones like doesn't he he doesn't have that uh, that layer of filter or something like he sees everything sui generis like it's all brand new to him and he sees it on his own terms or at least not on my terms or not on our terms you know yeah. not on the average person's terms you know and I find those people endearing and aggravating in equal measures because that's where as a conspiracy theorist you have to remember to ground yourself too. And to remember that facts are not just perceived in different ways, but have different implications too. you know, that you need to be willing to do the mental sifting that goes into, okay, well, let's look at X, Y, and Z thing. And what's the most probable here? And it goes back to incentive mapping, right? Because you can make a case that someone's a literal vampire, or maybe they just need a blood transfusion. Well, you you and I have had a couple of conversations around this topic recently, and I really appreciate the level of sanity uh, that you bring to, I guess, the 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 effort of conspiracy theorism, so to speak. Because you know there are there are people on both extremes. There are people who will never, in their life, uh, countenance the idea that a conspiracy might exist, even though people go to jail for proving conspiracies all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's to me, I mean, as an attorney, I see this, I, it's, it's trivially common to see, to see conspiracy, to commit fraud, conspiracy, to commit theft, com- conspiracy, to commit all these crimes. It happens. People plan secretly to commit crimes. It's not that, you know, it's not crazy. No. And, and but on the other side, you see people who, you know, will come out with, the absolute wildest conspiracy theories based on like the thinnest of facts and they don't do the homework and they don't, they don't take the next steps to contextualize everything or understand the incentives or understand the players or the historical context or any of it. And because what they're really doing as you and I both know is they're entertaining themselves. Um, and that's it. They, there's no, yeah, you know what that, that is absolutely perfectly valid. 
It is. I think sometimes I might go a little overboard ragging on people, but that is totally perfectly valid. I think Q is a great example of that. It's okay to have fun with this stuff too. It really is. I love the idea that the Roman Empire might still be alive and active underneath the ice of Greenland. Mm -hmm. Enjoy it. It's fun. But there is danger there, and that's what concerns me. And there, because there are a lot of people who do go crazy believing these things that you know they get from people who are just having fun or just entertaining themselves. And um, I, I know I know personally a couple people like that. So I'm speaking from experience here, and I see a lot of people who I think are, you know, who I talk to on Twitter, who I think are just having fun, and then you know I talk to them a little bit more. They add me to a group chat or something, and I'm like, oh. Oh, I see. You you're actually you're an insane person now. Like you've you've really become captured by this idea. Right. And it is it, it's like affecting your life deleteriously because you know there's there's crazy conspiracy like for example, I mean, I was I was talking about this today. I don't think that that uh, people landed on the moon. That's one of the the big conspiracy theories and I that I clearly have a position on. And, but it doesn't affect, it does, that doesn't affect my life in almost any way. I can't think of a way that that really affects my life. Uh, Because, but there are people that believe the same thing that I do, but it's like driven them crazy and they tank a lot of their life because of it, because they want to go tell everybody, they want to proselytize about it. People that end up punched in the face by elderly astronauts, right? Like Bart Seibrell, exactly. But so, yeah, I think I, you know, there's, I, I, if, if you can, if you're just having fun and that line is clear for you and it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, make you crazy, good for you, have fun, don't take it, that's, you know, continue to not take it seriously, continue to not do your due diligence. Um, But, you know, I, I appreciate that you are a voice uh, for a balanced and sane approach to these things, because um, you know, I appreciate everybody who who's maintains a degree of, I guess, like moral correctness, right? Like it's it's so easy to lapse into this position that, like, ah, the normies are lost. Like, leave them behind. Forget about them. You know, it's just like this this internet cruelty. Uh, toward other people that exists and i i find it really repellent so i'm always happy to see the level of compassion that you have for your fellow man and your desire for for everybody to make it so i really appreciate that about you and um it's part of what makes it such a pleasure to talk to you consistently about this kind of stuff yeah well i absolutely have to say thank you uh those were very kind words and i appreciate every single word of it I suppose uh, this is about the time we'd wrap up, but I know you've got some stuff in motion. So I want to give you an open platform for just a couple minutes here to promote anything and everything you might want to promote and what that list includes totally up to you. Sure. Um, you know, I, I don't have all that much to promote. I, like I said at the outset, I'm um, an author of science fiction and fantasy kind of in the pulp tradition. Uh, obviously my handle is Conan Esquire. I go by Alexander Palacio on Amazon. I wrote a book called The Turquoise Serpent. I think it's really good if you want to check it out. Uh, the Ignore sequel... when he says he thinks that. I'm going <laughs> to say it as an axiomatic fact. I've read it. It's fantastic. 
please go buy a paperback copy buy three give them to your friends hey i appreciate that the uh and if you do if you do go ahead and buy that uh you know leave me a review and the sequel book two is coming out within the next month or two so uh we will continue the adventures of our heroes in that one All right. If that's uh, about it, we'll call it there. Thank you so much, Conan. I'm glad we finally got to this. It's been a sincere pleasure. You were a terrific guest. This was excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much. I appreciate again you inviting me on, and I hope to come back sometime and talk. You know, we can talk boxing. We can talk anything else. I got a lot of subjects. I got a lot of tricks up my sleeve, so I'd love uh, love to chat further. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Have a good night, sir. Thank you. You too.